trouble talking. Wow. There are a number of sides to the prophet Amos. Amos was an outdoorsman. Uh, he came from a small town, Tekoa, in the Judean wilderness. Uh, he, was, he was an outdoorsman. He, uh, he raised a particular kind of sheep. He also tended the fruit of fig trees, or sycamore trees, I'm sorry. Uh, he was an outdoorsman. The other thing about Amos is he was an outsider to the political and the religious powers to be. Um, and I think there was a reason that God called Amos as an outsider. And so he becomes this public voice for God. Uh, as God spoke to him, he went, and as we've talked about in previous weeks, he went to, even though he was from the southern kingdom of Judah, he went to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he went to their places of power, uh, their places of worship, that had become um, corrupted by pagan influences. And he went and he spoke and he said, Thus saith the Lord. So there was, a, there was a public side to Amos. But there was also something behind the scenes that we would have to describe as the private life of Amos. And I think we get a glimpse into that today. It was not only that when God spoke to Amos behind the scenes in his private life that he spoke to him words. And as a prophet it said, now this is the message I want you to go and I want you to be courageous and I want you to just tell it the way it is and that's the way Amos did it. Not only did God speak to him in words, but as we see this morning in Amos chapter 7, he also spoke to him visually in visions. And this really happens in the private life of Amos between he and God. And, and I, I don't know this for sure, but my sense is as we look this morning at Amos chapter 7, at the start of those visions, I don't know that these visions were ever shared with anyone else until he wrote down uh, his story in his book. My contention this morning is, some of these things did not make it into the public realm. Now, I know that all the things that God spoke to him when he said, now tell the people this, thus saith the Lord, that he spoke those things, but there were other experiences behind the scenes in the private life of Amos that God showed him. And in fact, that's the key word. I want you to turn this morning, uh, either in your Bibles or you can look on the screen at Amos chapter 7. And I want to read the first nine verses, and let me lay this out for you. In Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, there are three visions. Each vision takes up three verses. And so we're going to see a vision, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9. Three visions. In fact, each one of them starts... As it says in verse 1, thus the Lord God showed me. And I would contend this morning that this is a private vision in which he, God shows him what he is about to do. And I want to look at the first of those. We're going to have to hit it pretty quick this morning. First vision 
is the vision of locusts. And it says, and let's just read the first three verses. Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. And so it was, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And a quite amazing verse in verse 3. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Prophet of God. Well, in fact, it's very important that you understand what Amos wrote in Amos 3, 7. When he said, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Amos 3, 7. The prophet says God doesn't do anything unless he reveals that truth, that statement to his prophets, the servants. God was revealing something to Amos and to the people of his day. And it, he sees this vision, and it is a vision of swarms of locusts, like the plagues in Egypt, and that God had formed this mass of locusts that were going to come and eat the vegetation. And he says specifically it was at the beginning of the late crop. And so if we think in our terms, there, if you're cutting hay, there's a first cutting, and it alludes to that, that this was the king's cutting. So apparently there was like a tax or this is what you owed for the support of the king and his household, his horses, his animals, I don't know. And so there was a first cutting of the hay that went to the king. And for whatever reason, when he sees this vision, this is the second growth. And so, you know, you get several cuttings of hay. And so you've already had the king's cutting, the first cutting, and this is after that. But there are swarms of locusts that are going to come, and they're going to eat all the vegetation, and there is going to be nothing to sustain the people and their animals because the locusts are going to eat everything. In verse 2, in the midst of that, the man of God, the prophet, prays. God has shown him I'm about to bring my judgment on the people and the swarms of locusts just like a plague in Egypt's going to come and you're going to be in dire straits. And this is going to be my, my, my form of judgment, one of my forms of judgment upon the people. And the man of God prays and he says, Oh Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh that Jacob may stand, for he is small. If you think about those words, I don't know how many words that was, but it's maybe about a dozen. Not many words. But the prophet of God intercedes for the people. Oh, God, forgive the people. And what he prayed for is, God, that your hand might be held back from your judgment. The Bible teaches us that God is long-suffering. He is not quick to judge. And sometimes our sins find us out immediately. Sometimes, and most of the times in life, there is a delay. And the prophet prays for a delay. God, would your hand just be held back? God, don't do it. He said that Jacob, which is a, another 
name for Israel, the northern kingdom, that they may stand, for he is small. God, in comparison to your great hand, Jacob is small, even though they may be full of themselves. God, I pray that your hand would be stayed. Quite an amazing statement in verse 3 that God changes his mind. (laughs) If you ever had to wonder about the power of prayer, God said, no, I'm sending the locusts. The prophet stands and prays and says, Lord, don't do it. I pray that you'd forgive them. And God withholds his hand and he doesn't do it. Second vision, verse 4. It says, thus the Lord God showed me. Notice that, that phrase again. This is the second vision. And as I've contended, this is in private. Here, I'm sorry. Verses 1 through 3. One of the things that strikes me is in the midst of this, the only people, the only person in all of that part of the world, anyone in the world that knew that God was about to bring his judgment was his prophet because God reveals his secrets to his prophets. And in a private encounter with God in prayer, the prophet intercedes and the hand of God is kept. And what do the people out there know? Nothing. There is no outward evidence that anything was coming or was about to happen. But there is a private encounter behind the scenes. God said, I'm about to do this. And the prophet prays and God changes his mind. Second vision, thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God caused, I'm sorry, called for conflict by fire. Second vision is a vision of fire. And it consumed the great deep, which would have been the subterranean uh, water sources, and devoured the territory, the land. So the second vision is God shows the prophet he's not going to send the locusts but this is actually more devastating he's going to send the fire and it's going to consume the whole land I think it's probably at the same time where it was after the the rains and uh, the grass was dry man a wildfire was going to sweep the country and destroy so much of the land verse 5 then I said O Lord God, cease, I pray. And then the same words, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Once again, the prophet intercedes and calls for God's hand to be stayed from this great devastation, which was due them, and God was right in calling for it. But the prophet intercedes for the people, one person. And it says in verse 6, Same as verse 3, so the Lord relented concerning this, this also shall not be, says the Lord God. And God changes his mind because the prophet interceded. First of the two visions of Amos, God showed him the locusts, he prays, and God changes his mind. God calls for fire, the prophet intercedes, and God changes his mind one man interceding for a nation behind the scenes quite unbeknownst 
to the people of their day, not even understanding what was coming, but God reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets, and the prophet is the man of God, a man of righteousness, stands in the gap and intercedes for the people, and the hand of God is stayed. Actually, we see a number of these episodes, particularly in the Old Testament. One person interceding for a nation Actually, in the first illustration, the hand of God is not ultimately stayed. The first time I can remember this in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham. Um, Brother Doyle, the three angels come to Abraham. One of those angels is the angel of the Lord, or as he's referred to in that scripture, the Lord. And the angels say, and the, the Lord says to the two angels and we don't have time for all that theology this morning. I don't even have time for that to explain to you how God changed his mind. The Lord says to the angels, shall we show Abraham what is about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? And God reveals to Abraham, standing there, the man of God. Now his, remember his nephew Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, a city, cities of great wickedness. And God said, I'm, I'm, about, to, I'm about to take them out. It's over. I'm going to destroy him. And do you remember the story of what happened? Abraham talks to God and he, and he intercedes and he says, but Lord, what if there were 50 righteous people in that land? Would you still destroy it? Destroy it? And God said, if there were 50, I wouldn't destroy it. You remember how the story went? Abraham goes, well, well, Lord, what if five of those 50 didn't end up being righteous? What if there were only 45? And God said, if it, there were 45 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, my hand would be stayed. Remember, it, it just goes, it goes on from here. But Lord, what if there were 40? Okay, if there were 40, my hand will be stayed. Lord, what if there's 30? Okay, if there's 30. Now, God doesn't probably, I, I would have been like, yeah, something I would have, yeah. I would have been mm, at my end. Mm. Anyhow, 20. And finally, one last time, Abraham intercedes for those people and said, Lord, what if there were only ten? And God said, if there were ten righteous people, my hand will be stayed. And you know how the story came out. The judgment of God came, not because Abraham hadn't interceded, but there were not ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God destroys those people. One man interceding for a whole group of people. Moses for 40 days went on the mountain of Sinai and met with God. You remember the story and it's told in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, in the midst of those 40 days, <laughs> the people get a little anxious and went, mm. the man went up and he hadn't come down. We don't think he's coming back. We're going to have to do something different. We're going to have to come up with plan B. And they talk uh, Joshua into making them an idol. And Joshua forms a golden calf out of fire and the gold that they've collected. And they begin to worship that. It must have been about the time after the 40 days and Moses is about to come down. And God, at the end of the 40 days, says, Now, Moses, you're going to go down. And he said, I want you to know 
that the people's hearts have turned away from me and I'm about to take them out. Okay, And, and he said, I'm going to start over and I'll just start with you and we'll go from there. And in the midst of that, Moses intercedes for the people. And you can read it in Exodus chapter 32. And he pleads with God. And God's hand is stayed. His mind is changed from judgment to mercy. We can go through many of the greats of the faith. We can go to Joshua and Joshua chapter 7. Interceding for the nation after the defeat at Ai. We could look at Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 12 as he interceded for the nation as a whole. We could read the story of the great man of faith, David, 2 Chronicles chapter 21. Actually, by David's own doing, the death angel comes and the death angel is killing people in Jerusalem. And they come to a point, I don't, Ornan, maybe it's Ornan's threshing floor. I don't. Yeah, look it up, Second Chronicles, maybe chapter 21. And the man of God, David, begins to intercede. Why, God, are you killing even the sheep? The death angel has come. And David pleads with God, and the hand of God is stayed. At that point, I think it's Ornan, maybe mispronouncing that, his threshing floor. And the death angel stops. Why? Because David interceded for the people. And David built an altar there. This is crazy. Where the hand of God was stayed. And then God, then David ordered the tabernacle to be brought to that point, And we will worship God at this point. And eventually, you understand, the temple by his son Solomon was built at that point where the man of God had interceded and the hand of God had been stayed right there, the place of sacrifice. One man interceding for a whole nation. We could go to Isaiah in the days of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32. We could read Daniel's story, Daniel chapter 9, of him interceding for the nation. One man interceding many times for a whole nation of people. And the hand of God was stayed, just like in Amos' day. I think this is much of what James, the writer in the New Testament, had in mind. James, who would have been ingrained in the Old Testament, would have read all these stories. He comes to the end of his book as he exhorts Christians in the first century in James 5.16, James writes, I think it's the second half of that verse, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, y'all know the old King James, availeth much, avails much. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he, he uses the illustration of Elijah in the Old Testament. We could have added that story to our list. One man interceding on behalf of the nation. And when I read the book of Amos and we come to these two instances, I cannot help but be struck and to, to make us stop 
at this point and understand the gravity of what is described in the scripture that one righteous man's prayers can stay the hand of God. The hand of God is moved in prayer. And many times it dictates the very destiny of nations because one person a righteous man or woman stood and pleaded with God and interceded for them. I can't help but think of the verse written in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, in which the scripture says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of of him whose heart is loyal to me, the Lord God. Why? Why was it that Amos could intercede with 12 simple words and the hand of God would be stayed from destruction of his people? Why Amos? Why was Amos even a prophet? And we're not told this, but we have to understand that in the eyes of God, Amos was right. Not only in his life, but in his heart, he was right with God. That had to be why God chose him to speak. He had to have someone he trusted who said, if I speak to you, not only will you hear me, but you will speak my words and you will have boldness and courage even when people want to persecute you, that you would say it just the way I told you. God used Amos because he was a man whose life had lined up with God and his heart was right with God. I don't think Amos had any other great qualities of his life that made him a prophet of God other than what is described in 1 Chronicles 16, 9. His heart was loyal to God. Henry Blackaby would say in Experiencing God, what can God do with, through one life? God can do through one life what anything God can do. God can do anything. He doesn't even need that one life. God can do anything. But he looks. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to me. God was looking in the days of Amos. And Amos, because his life had lined up and his heart was right, could pray to God. And the hand of God was stayed. That's a pretty amazing truth. That the hand of God is moved by prayer. And not by the prayer of anyone that's special in any great way. Other than their heart is completely loyal to God. The power of intercession. Understand what that truth means on the negative side and would have applied to the vast majority of people in Amos's day and I'm afraid in our day that when our lives don't line up and our hearts are not wholly his 
then we lose the power. What can God do through one life? God can do anything when he finds one heart that is completely loyal to him. That's why I've tried to capture the entire meaning of Amos by the phrase, get real, get right. Get real with God, see it the way he sees it, and get right, line up your life with him. Two visions. The hand of God is stayed by the prayer of one man, but there is a tipping point because we come to the third vision. Let me read the third vision and then we'll talk about it. In verse 7. Thus he showed me, same phrase, it's the two other times, verse 1 and verse 4. Behold, it was something I saw. The Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam, who was the king of the time. Hmm. The thing that strikes us about that story is you see a third vision, but you don't see a prayer. And the spiritual truth is, there is a tipping point that eventually the righteousness of God will judge sin. Amos prays twice, and the hand of God is stayed. And why does God do that? God does it because he is long-suffering and he is merciful and he extends the time of mercy and grace for the people to repent. But I'm telling you, there comes a point that God, a righteous God will judge sin. It is inevitable. The vision... The third vision is of a plumb line. This is just my redneck plumb line that I made in my office Friday before I left. Just, oh my, it broke. That's bad. That's bad. I'm on the fly now. Vincent, do you have a plumb line in your pickup real quick? You do. Man, I should have called you. It wouldn't look so janky now. Plumb line helps. Janky's a Hebrew word if you didn't know that. Not really. A plumb line was used to determine perpendicular, particularly if you were building a wall. It was simply a string with a heavy weight on the bottom of it. And I'm telling you, that line right now, because of the weight of that, is exactly straight up and down. I do not have to depend upon my eye to say, mm, that looks pretty straight, because I'm a little cockeyed, you know. 
uh, it's not going to be straight. But if you get a plumb line and you, you drop it beside a wall, you can measure and determine if you're staying plumb, if you're completely perpendicular. The vision of Amos, God said, what do you see? And he said, well, I see you standing there with a plumb line. And God says, I'm about to put a plumb line on my people. I'm about to test them and determine whether their lives are completely right and square. Do you know why a plumb line works? I don't either, but anyhow, it's a good question. Ask Vincent afterwards. No. Maybe Laddie knows. I don't know. Gary or Don for sure know. No, it's because of gravity. Gravity is a constant force. And so, uh, you know, because gravity is true that it doesn't depend upon us to determine what is exactly straight up and down. It is a plumb line. If you want to buy this from me, you can chip in some money and donate it to the youth garage sale. There is something <clears throat> very visual. God said, I'm going to put a plumb line. That's not a very good one. I'm going to put a plumb line to determine whether my people are straight up and down, and I'm going to test them. And so what would be done with a wall is they would continue to, to put bricks on it, and it would get higher and higher. And here's the reality. I'm not very good at this, actually, but um, we can go up. And if I sit here and I, I eyeball this, I'm okay. You good? I'm making you a little nervous. Um, the reality is if I'm eyeballing this, and notice this one, if I get off a little bit here, off a little bit here, and the reality is if I'm off a little bit there and I continue to be off, as I go higher and higher, I know this is making some of you very nervous, only practice this one time Friday. <clears throat> Didn't turn out very good, but anyhow. Brother Steve, we got some broken speakers down here, but I'll, I'll talk with you later about that. If I continue to maintain that, and it's off just a little bit, some of y'all are getting nervous out there. And I'm not going to get there maybe this morning with this, because <laughs> it's going to make you nervous. If I continue to go, and if you're sitting straight out there, you're going, oh, preacher, you're getting off. You're getting further and further. The reality is, the point that this wall falls is not because God judged it. Oh, my, we're real close. I'm going to have to stop there. No, judgment of sin is inevitable. And it wasn't so much in the third vision that God said, I'm going to judge my people. No, it's the reality of life. You have brought judgment upon yourself because one of the universal principles is not simply gravity, but the righteousness of God. Eventually, sin will get its due. And if you continue to build a wall that's not plumb, the further you go, sooner or later, not only is that last brick going to fall, but the whole wall is going to fall. And I'm going I'm to take this down because I know some of you And I believe when, when God showed that last vision to Amos, he was saying there comes a time that the hand of God cannot be stayed because the reality is 
is God is a God of righteousness and sooner or later our sins will find us out. The judgment of sin is inevitable because the righteousness of God is a universal force. God is righteous. And we can point at God and say, well, God's a God of judgment, but the reality is we bring judgment upon ourselves because we continue in a way that is not lined up with God, and eventually our sins will find us out. Now here's the bottom line today. Well, won't you stand? It'll make you think I'm finished. We could go another five, ten minutes, but anyhow, stand. You'll feel better. You'll listen better. Brother Shane's going to come. Hear, hear me on this, and I'm finished. In the midst of our sin, God, out of his mercy and long-suffering, he sends word to us. He says, your wall is crooked. And I can blame the plumb line. And I can blame other people, but the reality, if I continue in that path, in time, for Israel, it was 40 years before the judgment of God came after Amos. Wow. How merciful is God to wait another 40 years? But in the midst of our sin, God will send us word. And it all comes down to what is my response to what God's plumb line said to me. Will I adjust my life to the plumb line of a merciful God who said you're off and your life is headed for destruction? You see, there's great power in a life that's lined up because you can pray and stay the hand of God against a nation. But eventually, the righteousness of God will, will test us and show that our lives have not lined up. What is the admonition? Get real. Get honest with God. Don't blame the plumb line. The plumb line just does what the plumb line does, and it's true. You can count on it. It's not crooked. And when God shows you that you're off, get right amen amen we're going to stand have a hymn of commitment as you have commitments to make you come as we sing at the cross at the cross i surrender my life i'm in
cross of the cross. 